What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Life Lessons from Boiler Room, the movie, with my good friend Matt Dobschutz. Matt, welcome back to the show. What are we doing today? We're talking about Boiler Room. You know, you and I love quoting Boiler Room, uh, the 2000, uh, 2000 movie uh, with such notables as Giovanni Ribisi, uh, Vin Diesel. Uh, of course, Ben Affleck makes a wonderful cameo in this movie. Um, and uh, there's, you know, it's young stockbrokers. Uh, you know, right, you know, 2000, you know, before, you know, it's so funny, like this last year, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the market and a lot of people doing day trading. And this is kind of the bro culture, stockbroker trading from like, you know, 20 years ago, but it still feels similar to some of the more recent stories. So well, I always loved Boiler Room because I grew up on Long Island and the movie is, in my opinion, the original story of Jordan Belfort, The Wolf of Wall Street. And his firm, Stratton Oakmont, was based on Long Island and it was kind of this rogue outcast firm that printed money. Obviously, they were violating rules, but I remember growing up in and around that environment. One of my friends from elementary school, his father was a stockbroker at Cantor Fitzgerald and in the 90s was making $900,000 a year in his salary. And I was just enthralled by this whole world. And then when I saw the movie, I just really thought it was fascinating what these people were doing and the criminal aspect and the legal aspect, the sale aspect of it. And it was just a fascinating movie. Well, it's interesting. As I was watching it, I realized I don't even know in 2000, what I would have understood of the movie. Now I think I understand the scheme, you know, like there's, so in it, I mean, we're, it's 21 years old, so we're not giving it away. Either you saw it or you need to need to watch it. It's on YouTube. You can watch it uh, with ads on YouTube for free. So you can watch it immediately after you listen to this episode, or you could even pause the episode right now and watch it and then come back. Uh, but, you know, the scheme is this idea that, I, I, as far as I can know, you you know more about investing, but it sounds like what it was is they would pump up a stock to their um, uh, to their customers to their to, and they would recommend stock, but the stock would actually be sort of owned mostly by the principals of the company, so they were essentially selling shares at an inflated market, and as soon as they you know, as soon as the, the, the inflated part of the market fell out, um, the customers would be holding all the losses. The, the, yeah. Right? 
Yeah, so in a, in a pump and dump scheme, which is a form of securities fraud, the principal investors, the main owners of the stock would be J.T. Marlin, for example, the name of the firm in the movie, and the people who worked there would own a large position in the company. Then they'd go out to these people, they'd cold call and use these ruthless and very high-pressure sales techniques on the phone to get doctors and lawyers and other people to buy up thousands and thousands of shares of the stock, which would drive the price of the stock higher. And they would do this with micro cap, very small stocks without a lot of liquidity. So that volume would make an even bigger impact on driving the stock price up. And then once the stock goes from say three to six or $10, then all the brokers at JT Marlin would dump all their shares at, uh, they'd sell all their shares at a huge profit. And then the market, the, because when all that heavy selling would cause the stock price to go back down. And so the people that they dumped all this stock onto would be stuck with the losses. And they would call people up and get them to put their life savings into these stocks. It's one of the most evil, corrupt things you can do. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, it's very corrupt the way that they were doing it. But uh, I mean, the, the interesting thing about last year, you know, I was looking at I was looking at Google uh, trends for last year. One of the 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 top ten most searched for things was AMC stock, because you know AMC last year was one of these stocks that um, that Reddit sort of <laughs> inflated by putting energy and talk about. So the stock would go up. Everyone would make money one day, but then as people got in, as laggards kind of got on to the trend, they'd end up. You know the the stock would the the price would fall out of the stock you know or something like that. I, isn't that kind of what was happening? Yeah, there was a lot of market manipulation and a lot of speculation on stocks like AMC and GameStop was another big one last year where people on Reddit and the subreddit Wall Street Bets were creating a lot of energy and commotion around the stock and it was kind of unprecedented that a blog could really drive that much volume and influence on a stock, but. Yeah, I mean, I think this movie, uh, Boiler Room, is entertaining. It's uh, There are a lot of life lessons from it as well. And it's such a good movie to quote. So I know we have a couple of tracks and a couple of quotes we want to do also. But I think we each came prepared with three kind of talking points or life lessons we wanted to share from the movie, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I want to get to that just one second. I want to, I want to ask one more question about this Wall Street Bets thing. From what I remember... Part of the part of the way that it was manipulating is taking advantages of of um, mutual funds that have positions in certain stocks. So when a stock would go up, they would have to there were these automatic things to buy or and that's kind of what it was doing. These little guys were pumping up a stock and then institutions, because of their own rules or how they were managing their funds, would have to buy more stock or do something take to react to to the market and so that that was one thing i remember i don't know all the details you probably know it yeah no it's a, it's a common thing where the institute institutions like blackrock and large mutual funds and fidelity are the pr primary holders the largest holders of most of the publicly traded stocks out there and so one of the things that i actually used to do when i worked at a hedge fund is we would look for mispricing stock opportunities. For example, if a stock 
would trade down more than 10% in one day, there might be rules that a mutual fund would have to force to sell that stock, but it would actually be a good stock long-term. And so then that'd be create a buying opportunity. So taking advantage of rules and forced buying or forced selling by large mutual funds was definitely something that we uh, looked at. Yeah, no, totally. And I'm looking at, uh, my family's going crazy here. It's the day before the new year. And so everyone's home. There's been already drama in the in the other room while we've been talking. Uh, so I, I, heard, I heard two teenagers fighting at one point in my outside of my headphones. I'm, yeah, I'm get, take here. control of your ship over there. I, I know, exactly, right? I, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to make them all watch Boiler Room after this and, uh, you know, yeah. Get them into shape, you know. Get out of here. <laughs> get the, get the f out of here. Get the, get the out of here. Get the get out of the Italian leather chair and get out. Come get on, your Skippy. Ass out Come on, Skippy. <laughs> Pack up your ish. Uh, so um, so yeah. So we each uh, so so we're talking about boiler room because we talk about it all the time. Uh, part of it is because. Um, there's a lot of, there's a couple of great scenes where they talk about selling and, you know, th they based Boiler Room in large part kind of on uh, the uh, the classic uh, Glenn Gurry, Glenn Ross movie where Alec Baldwin does a speech about selling. And so they kind of patterned a little bit of this movie and some of the dialogue after that, that play. It was originally a play. Interestingly enough, the Alec Baldwin part was not in the play. Um, they put it in for the movie. And uh, so anyway, they kind of did this in Boiler Room. They have these different sales things. And and the crazy thing is, is you and I both know this. Play play a, play a scene, a uh, sound from the movie. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's, um, I'm going to play. So uh, Ben Affleck plays the kind of, hiring manager hiring manager but he also he also trades does sales and um and so he has a couple things that he does about sales couple of of monologues and i want to just play a clip of the the last part of one of his monologues that i really loved um oh and actually no i'm gonna play uh, i'm gonna play one of the beginning things when he's first bringing in some of these trainees these stockbroker trainees he's talking about uh, what's possible and what's required. And so he talks about what's possible for them to earn money. And I think he, right before he says this, he, he talks about he's a millionaire. It's, it's, it's crazy to say I'm a millionaire. You know, I know. <laughs> and, and he kind of paints this picture of you will be a millionaire in the next three years if you follow this and you do these st things. And so, so let me just play this clip right at the end of this little speech. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. You are required to work your fucking ass off at this firm. We want winners here, not pikers. A piker walks at the bell. Piker asks how much vacation time you get in the first year. Vacation time. People come and work at this firm for one reason, to become filthy rich. That's it. We're not here to make friends. We're not saving the fucking manatees here, guys. You want vacation time? Go teach third grade public school. Okay, there you go. Oh, I love that line. 
Hikers walk at the bell. I, I love that line. Now, the reason I shared this, though, we were talking about life lessons. And what I love about this is he paints this picture of what's possible. You know, whether it's BS or not, he, he paints it. He, he throws his car keys, uh, you know, his, his uh, Ferrari car keys on the, the table. What's up? <laughs> he, 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 you know, he talks about how much money he makes. And it's really clear that he's painting a vision for what's possible. But then he goes, that's what's possible. Here's what's required. And it's very specific. It's a lot of hard work. And it's, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of like, you're not, you're not an employee. You're not looking at the watch going to my, is it time for me to knock off today? You're not having that attitude. You're having the attitude that you're going to take complete ownership of your job and do whatever it takes. Now, what I like about this is now you and I both are in coaching and there's many times guys come to me with the challenge that they have. And on my coaching application, I say, are you willing to do what it takes? Everyone always checks what? Yes. Yes, I am willing to do what it takes. And so I get on a call with them and I go, here's what's possible. You can do this. You can do that. You can, we can get you to here. We can do this. And then I'll go, here's what's required. You know, you need to sign up for this or you need to, here's, here's a couple steps we need to take. And they'll start telling me reasons they can't do it. They'll start sort of, you know, I can't afford that or I can't do this or I can't do that. It's in it or they'll, they'll kind of put some parameter on things. And I'm realizing they're kind of like pikers. There's a, there's this idea. They want this idea of, of this transformation of this gain but they're not really willing to do what it's required. And I see that over and over where, where guys sort of fall in love with the idea of a possibility, but they're not really willing to do what's required. Yeah. No, it's a good point because when you look at Giovanni Ribisi, he plays the lead role of Seth in the movie. He's very driven. He's very hungry. And he puts, he's also very smart, but he really puts in the work that's required to be successful. And you can say a lot of bad things about these stockbrokers and the crimes they commit and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, they were all very hungry and very driven and they did do what was required. Yeah. And, and I, I think the cool thing about this, you know, I've been thinking about some of the hard things I did, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, the, this fact that I just wrote a book and, and, and publishing this book the the interesting thing is for years i thought it was possible to write a book i go i want to write a book i want to write a book i want to write a book but what gets a book published is doing what's required i mean it was sitting every morning and writing it was kind of going through the process of editing it was going back and forth with the publisher it was you know getting people to read it getting feedback editing again. I mean, there were so many different things that went through it that now I'm like, okay, I have a book, right? It, it really happened. But the work that it went into it, it, there was a lot that was required, you know, and, and I think that is for a lot of things in life, the really difficult things, right? Making a million dollars or growing a business, starting a company, you know, all these different transformational things, losing a hundred pounds or running a marathon, 
you know, it's, it's all possible, but it's what's required is what's really important and how hard you show up. Totally. I, I have people come to me and we get on the phone and I say, Hey, nice to meet you. Oh, I love the podcast, da, 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 whatever, however they found me. And I say, great. What do you want? I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, well, I'm a coach. I'm going to help you get what you want. What do you want in your life that you don't have? And they'll say, I want to be a multimillionaire and lose 50 pounds and get married and buy my dream house. And I look at them and I say, Is, do you really want all those things? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I wanted those things to make me happy. They're my, all my dreams. I say, but do you really want all those things? Do you understand what's going to be required of you in order to have those things that you want? And that's where you said, like you said, the breakdown happens because I heard Denzel Washington say this once. It's very basic, but it's, it really landed on me. He said, working very hard is what successful people do. Like, that's just the thing that you do is you work your tail off. You put in the hours during the day, at the end of the day, over the weekend. Like, and I don't know if that's a born or a made thing. I think I was born with this drive gene. My mom has it. My grandpa had had it. And I'm just like, when I want something, I will do whatever I need to freaking do to make it happen. I'll find the right mentors. I'll surrender. I'll work hard. I'll let go. Whatever I need to do, I'll do it. And then I ha and then I get the thing. And then I teach other people how to get the thing. But yeah, no, I, I appreciate that you share that because what's possible and what's required are very different things. But they're the what's required is critical. And I'd imagine that a lot of men come to you, Matt, because they want to quit porn. I, I mean, do you... Do the men, do these guys like not realize how much work is required sometimes? Like when they get into it, do they realize what it takes to do it? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. They're, it's kind of like the, you know, the piker watches the bell, you know, a guy will say like, well, you know, I want this change, but uh, you know, I don't want to do a group <laughs> or I don't want to tell my wife or I don't want to. He'll, he'll have like five other things that he isn't willing to do. And I'm like, well, what if you have to do those things to be free? And there's a weird thing that they have. I go, what if you have to go to like three groups a week to, to really get this under control? Are you willing to do it? Yeah. And at the end of the day, they're not, they're not willing to do what's required a lot of times. And, and I can find out right away sometimes when I'm talking to them that they're not ready, that they're not ready to do what's required. Um, I'd love to play the next clip because Do it. Jim Young, the our Ben Affleck character who's coaching the mentoring these younger uh, trainees, um, he goes on about sales and he's talking about sales and closing. And this is where the the uh, uh, you know kind of the uh, the the lineage to Glenn Gary Glenn Ross comes out. You know, ABC always be closing. They even quoted in the movie. Uh, it's so funny they do a number of things where they quote other movies they quote they show them watching wall street and they oh quote, I, that's one of my favorite scenes of the movie when they rotate quoting gordon gecko and they all know the lines memorized yeah and i think what a great idea for a movie to say anyone anyone who's a stockbroker alive in 2000 who's going after this business will have watched this movie will oh, have yeah. will, will have learn the quotes to this like you don't have to hide that that's what an influence is in the filmmaking i love the fact that they did that yeah um, that was so anyway scene. so jim young at the end of this speech is talking about sales 
And here's the, here's the quote that I really want to pull out. Um, and it's about how a sale is kind of the sale that's made on every call. So here, I'll play, I'll play the clip for you. And there is no such thing as a no-sale call. A sale is made on every call you make. Either you sell the client some stock or he sells you on a reason he can't. Either way, a sale is made. The only question is, who's going to close? You or him? Uh, be relentless. That's it. I'm done. I'm done. Oh my gosh, I that that line. I love that line. I've actually played that on my podcast uh, before. Um, so I, I did a little precursor to our boiler room life lessons by playing that quote because because I I find this all the time. You probably see it in coaching all the time. Is someone comes with a list of excuses of why they can't do something. Totally. And, and as a coach. If you take that at face value and, and buy into that, you're essentially letting them sell you that story. Oh yeah, I guess you can't do it. Oh, you're right. Oh, that does make sense. That's a, that's yeah, that I can see that. Oh, well, this isn't going to work for you. And, and I, a lot of times I have to go, you know, I have to remember, you know, that I'm not going to buy someone's sales story if if it's not good for them if it's not actually the thing that's gonna help them i can't buy into it i can't let them just tell me that's what's true i have to really close i have to get them to see and influence them to see where i'm at now i'm uh, coaching a lot of times we let our clients kind of figure out what they want to do and we want to help them take ownership but one of the a real disservice I could do is just let someone tell me something that's a mistaken belief or a limiting belief and just let it go unchecked. Like, Oh yeah, you're right. You can't make that much money. You're right. Right. Oh, you can't charge that much as a, uh, in your business. So yeah, your, your customer would never pay for that. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you can't do that. You have to, as a coach, you have to go, is that true mm -hmm. over and over? And you have to really press for that bigger gain. Yeah. I, I've seen a lot of objections in the years as a coach and the most common ones that I get lately are now's not the right time. I can't afford it. Can't afford it's like one of the fan favorites because they just can just use price as an excuse to not really engage in what the real issue is. Or I know what I need to do. Like I don't need you. I already know what I need to do. I'm just not doing it, which is a funny one. But to your point, it's always about figuring out why they're actually getting in their own way if they would succeed with us, if it's a good fit, if they need it, if they want it subconsciously and they're getting in their own way. Yeah, I mean, we we get that all day long and we've found ways to uh, really make sure if it makes sense and they're a good fit, how to work through some of those objections with healthy rebuttals. There's a great scene in comment? Can I make a comment about that before yeah. we go on? You know, it's not just for us, like closing, say, a sales with a, like getting a new coaching client or something like that. Um, it happens in the coaching process all the time. Um, you know, I was talking to someone the other day, a really successful coach, um, and we were doing some. I was, I was actually coaching her on one little thing, and 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 she said she was procrastinating this this thing that she wants to build it's something she super gets excited about it's something she's done before successfully she was procrastinating though and i said why are you procrastinating and she goes well there's just this thing in me 
where I don't feel good enough. And I almost fell off my chair because this is a very accomplished coach. And it's like, how could this person not feel good enough? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I'm not trying to sell her on my service or sell her on me, but I also am not going to buy this. She's not good enough story either. <laughs> you know, so yeah. part of the coaching is like, how do we get, let's figure out what this not good enough means. Like what, what's coming up for you where you're buying this story essentially that you're not good enough. And this is keeping you from moving forward. And let's figure out how to, let's figure out how to get through this. Um, so that's an example. I'm not trying to sell her on, on say hiring me or something like that. I'm actually trying to get her to invest in, okay, we have to get past this belief of buying this belief that you're not good enough. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point too. I, you know, I was going to share a quote about boiler room, but I also thought of another one from Ben Affleck when he's talking about sales. <clears throat> he says, and be aggressive, learn how to push, ask them questions, ask them rhetorical questions. It doesn't matter. Just get a yes out of them. If you're drowning and I threw you a life jacket, would you grab it? Yes. Good. Pick up 200 chairs. I won't let you down. I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, and I, it's funny. I heard, um, I heard another guy, Chris Voss, who's a, a, a great sales guy um, who does podcasts, wrote, wrote some books and stuff. Um, he says he likes getting no's. Like he goes, he, he asked the question, like, is there anything that would keep you uh, from buying today? And, and if they say no, he's like, great, si here's how to sign up. He yeah. wants to hear a no. It's the same thing. It's like Ben, uh, ben Affleck, Jim Young in the, in the movie wants a yes because he wants to get them in the habit of saying yes so that they're, they're, they're going to say yes, yes, yes. Let's do it. Yes. You know, they're all in. Chris Voss says, I want to hear a no. A yeah. firm no that there there's nothing that's going to keep them from moving forward. But yeah, I, love, I like I that. It. And I was going to say too that the other guy who trains uh, Giovanni Ribisi, I think his name is Nikki Cat or something in real life, the actor. Yeah, he sits down with Seth when Seth is really struggling to sign people up, and he says, "Hey, man, they used to have this thing, an old Filofax, which had a rebuttal for every objection you get. So anytime if I need to talk to my wife." There's an answer for it. If I can't do it today, there's an answer for it. And it's funny because they're just, they're so relentless that they just don't take no for an answer. Obviously that's not our job, but one of the things that's been helpful for me is thinking about the main reasons why people, when they really would benefit from working with me and they're coming, presenting reasons why not, it's coming up with like great questions or great pre-prepared ways to handle certain situations that are authentic. Well, you know, what's a really simple thing that, you know, Zig Ziglar talks about, and they kind of refer to it a little bit in this movie or infer asking for the sale is like really important. And I think sometimes even as coaches, or if we're, you know, selling a service or something like that, it's really easy to think that our customer is going to put all the pieces together and sell themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you have to say, Hey, um, you know, I'd really like to work with you. Here's, here's what I'm thinking let's work together for this amount of time. This is the cost. This is how you take action and get started. Just some of those simple things help them be able to say yes. They, they need to be answering a question. When, when you're wanting them to say yes, you, you want to be asking them a question. You don't want to just have this vague 
idea of maybe working with me, you want to have a clear picture of what you're asking them to say yes to. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, for a long time, I didn't understand that when I was very new to coaching and I, a lot of people that I coach who are trying to build their own coaching businesses struggle with that too. You have to, I mean, there's finesse and nuance that we teach in terms of not telling them the price or not telling them a lot about the program until they ask. But if it doesn't come up, yeah, you got to pitch when the time is right. I did a, uh, I closed someone recently a couple months ago and I was kind of a little rusty for some reason. And I presented the offer and uh, I forgot like what I say, you know, when I say the offer and it was just kind of hanging out there. And then I just said, what do you think about that? (laughs) (laughs) Not the best question ever, but the person said, the person actually was really adept in sales. And he went, that's a really funny question to ask in a sales conversation. And I, (laughs) but then he goes, well, here's what I think. And he answered it. That was the funny part. It's like, it's like uh, uh, Jim Young. It's like, just ask him anything, like get him talking, get him, you know, getting him involved. And that's the funny part about it. He ended up, even though it was kind of a boffed question or kind of a botched question, he still ended up answering it. And he still ended up sort of working with me. So that was the that was the irony is I asked a dumb question in the close, and it's. I don't think there. that's a dumb question though. You pitched him, and then you said, "What do you? Where are you at? What do you think about it?" I just it was just the way it sounded. It sounded a little like it. It didn't sound like I knew what where we were going. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, funny. well. Well, hey, let's uh, let's get to this uh, another one here. So, so our main character, our hero's journey is Seth, and um, some of the backstory here is he was was kind of an entrepreneur. He was a college dropout, but he was running a little house casino and had a little business, and and the whole uh, the whole uh, hero's journey in the in the movie is he takes this job at this kind of un, un, um, unethical uh, stockbroker firm as a way to sort of like try to um, win over his dad's approval. His dad was a judge and you know probably looked down on most of the things he did and most of his choices. So he thought if he became this sort of successful stockbroker, that would, that would, uh, it would win, finally uh, have win his, his father's dad. approval. Yeah. yeah. Win his dad over. And and he ends up in the in the pursuit of becoming the stockbroker. He ends up closing his little home business, and and uh, and so he's going in to talk to his dad as things start to go wrong at the end. And he has this little uh, inner dialogue where he says this to himself. So here we go. That's the setup. I wish my dad could have stepped into the casino just once. He would have had to be impressed. Four employees an organized payroll, huge client list. You know, it's funny looking back, the illegal business I was running was the most legitimate thing I had going. I looked my customers in the eye and provided a service they wanted. Now, I don't even look at my customers and I push them something they never asked for. Wow. That's so good. Yeah, you you and I both pulled this clip as a as something we want to talk about. So, what did you think about it, Brendan? I think there's a lot of complexity to that dynamic between Seth and his father, where <clears throat> his father withheld a lot of love from him when he was a child, 
I don't know if you remember the scene where Seth is on the date with the receptionist and he tells the story to her about how he fell off the bike and his father hit him to get him to stop crying. And so when I looked at the, the people pleasing that Seth did in the movie to get his father's uh, love, obviously, you know, Seth did a lot of things wrong in that pursuit. But I feel like the father was equally responsible for co-creating the situation by withholding so much love from Seth. And that's one comment. And then the other is that, you know, when you're selling stock to people who don't want it, it's, it's kind of demoralizing and challenging. It sounds like to be calling people all day long, trying to get them to take an action that they have no interest in taking. And then to layer on top of that, that you're selling them a stock that's probably going to crash. It's, uh, it sounded like even though the casino wasn't fulfilling or it wasn't legal and wasn't really scalable, it actually made Seth a lot happier when he ran that as opposed to going somewhere else, trying to make more money and then doing something that didn't make him happy and wasn't sustainable. Yeah. I mean, I think that that idea of service that he talks about that, you know, he was actually delivering a service that his customers wanted um, was the biggest difference, you know, and even uh, in a scene or two be earlier than that, he's talking to his dad and his dad's kind of confronting him about, working at this firm the dad did some research on the firm and 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 he asked Seth have you made your customers any money you've been selling them investments wouldn't if you were a, a good stockbroker wouldn't they be having a return and and you could see in Seth's eyes he's like no they're they're not making uh, and and he and he actually said this is worse than the casino. You're stealing, and and the the judge had some judgments over the the casino because of the unethical part. And he thought that you know probably people were losing money in the neighborhood to this casino, and that was a problem. But but he said this is even worse. You're actually stealing. You know that there's no return. There's nothing of value that you're providing, and I think that's actually what really started getting him. As he started to put together the the scheme, he you know Seth figures out the scheme, um, and the way he figures out the scheme is they're giving these high commissions that are. There's no way they could be giving the commissions that they're giving if they yeah. weren't making all this money on the pumped up stock. Like they wouldn't. I think the commissions were actually illegal. They were. It was too much compensation for the stockbroker, um, breaking some SEC rule. But that that's what. That's what tipped Seth off because he was adding up the commissions going, this doesn't make sense. You can't, this isn't viable unless right, right. you're making all profit on this stock selling. Yeah. Yeah. They, in the movie, they called them rips and Seth started asking questions about how come the rips were so big. And then he started to catch on to it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, it just, it's interesting when, when he talks about the casino being, more legitimate like that is to me a testament of how bad what he they were doing was like there's a whole storyline in the movie where seth convinces that guy harry i think his name is the the nice family man in the midwest to basically take their life savings that they were going to use to buy a different house and to then buy this stock like if i ever you know go on jordan belfort's podcast or vice versa I would, you know, and, and I think he's rehabilitated himself a lot. 
but it's like, man, how do you, uh, how do you take someone's life savings away, you know, and, and do that, like, and replicate that and do that for a lot of different people. And maybe that wasn't what they were doing, but in the movie, they kind of portray it that way. Yeah. And I, I think that that's where the, the, that's where as someone who's ethical, you have to pull, put together the sales techniques, the closes, those kind of things, the, 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 uh, the artifice for sales, right. For being good at sales, it has to be tied to service. Once you take sales out of service and it's just, then it's just manipulation. Yeah. And, and, um, and so, you know, I, I love, uh, Dan Sullivan, um, who wrote who not how, and, um, the gap in the gain, he's this famous coach. Um, he had this definition for, for sales that I love. It's getting people uh, intellectually engaged with a future result that's good for them. Yeah. And getting them to emotionally commit to take action to achieve that result. And, and one of the things that, that helps me be more relentless, as Jim Young would say, or push harder a little bit is to go, hey, this person's coming to me because they want help. And this, we're going to get a future result that's good for them. So I need to do whatever I can to get them to emotionally commit to this action, to kind of get rid of the barriers, get rid of the objections so that they can achieve that result. And so I don't have to feel bad about selling. I don't, right. feel, I don't have to be bad. I don't have to feel bad about charging money for what I do. Yeah. Because it's a service that they want and it's, it's a service that they need. I had a uh, breakfast yesterday with one of the guys who's in my group coaching program. He flew in uh, to visit his in-laws during the holidays here in, in Chicago. And I got together with him. And as we're leaving, uh, he, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, he's, we're in the parking lot. It's cold. He, he's getting in his car. He just starts talking about the value of being in the group. And he said this, this is the craziest thing. He said, you know what? And I actually think the money that I pay to be in the group makes me more invested. Yeah. And it makes the other guys in the group show up more. So here's what he's basically saying to me. The service that you're providing in this group and the cost itself actually helps me engage with it. Yeah. It's helping me get the result I want. So he's he's not mad at me. He didn't get manipulated into a group. He's not He's not looking at me like, why did I do this? He's going, that service that you provide that costs money actually is helping me. I want it. Yeah. I used to run a, like a membership site more where we had a lot of people in and it was 49 bucks a month. And the show up rate was so low. People wouldn't come to the calls and it's like, cause it was too cheap. And then we obviously added a lot more value and support, but we now charge a lot more you know, five, six, fig well, five figures. And, you know, for that one program and the attendance rate is so much higher and the buy-in and the, the results are so much better. Like it's the results go better when you create that bigger investment, assuming again, you're providing value and you can give them real takeaways that they can implement. But yeah, I totally agree. When you find someone who is like, that right fit for your program and you know they need it and they have some level of want, but they're getting in their own way. I'm, I'm not afraid to really challenge them 
like all the stuff that the boiler room guys talk about because you have to hold them accountable. You have to set the tone that, hey, you're on this call because you're obviously not where you want to be. And you need someone, you need accountability, you need this, you need that, you need the blueprint, you need all these things. And now you're telling me that uh, it's it's January 1 tomorrow and you're telling me that you want me to call you back in May. You want to wait until May and then we'll have, like that's the, one of the funniest things that we get that objection a lot. Like, oh, you know, we'll do it later. And then, and then it's like, and I really, that's one of the things I really challenge people on. Like if someone's not a good fit, they're not wanting what we have, they don't need it. That's fine. Like I was on the phone today with a woman and she just wasn't, or actually yesterday with this guy and he was like almost 70 and he's not, he has no interest in growing, growing his coaching business. He's been happy where it's been at. He actually offered to coach me or to do some hybrid model where we coach each other and I said, hey, man, my coaches are doing like $3 million a month. So I apologize, but that's of no interest to me. And because uh, I'm really focused on growing my business. And so I didn't pitch him anything because he's not, he doesn't want what we help people with, which is fine. But when I'm talking to someone else, I talked to another woman yesterday and she's like, let me think about it. Let me, let's wait several months. And that's when I press in. I'm like, okay, so this thing will probably take three to six months. So would you rather have this in June or would you rather I call you in June and we talk about starting something where the result will come in 2023? Wow. Tell me you don't like my program, but don't tell me you don't like the tie on my neck. <laughs> right. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting back to back to the hero of the story, Jim Young, as, as I like to think of it, the, the, the hero of the boiler room. Yeah. I will say that when he's talking to the young trainees, that's probably the most ethical selling in the whole, <laughs> in the whole movie. Yeah. Because he's inviting them in to this, to this pro to this, you know, company where they are going to make a million dollars in three years, which is, you know, probably true if they don't get arrested, <laughs> but, but he, you know, he, he, you know, uh, Seth at some point does go to his house and he has a nice house and he does drive the Ferrari. Those things are possible. And when he's inviting them into this, he's actually selling them and, you know, potentially like Dan Sullivan, he's potentially, he's presenting a future result that's going to be good for them. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to, if you work hard, you'll get this. And it was designed to do that. It, of course, obviously it falls apart, but, but you know, there was something to that. So I, 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 I think that that's one of the things that we're looking for, right? We're serving our clients or you might be doing a, a business. You got to keep asking, what's the service I'm providing? What am I, what am I doing for my clients? Do they want this? Yeah. Because selling something they don't want and using manipulation it's not going to turn out well it's going to be like the end of boiler room right where the oh uh, yeah well one know, one of the things too at the end and cleans everybody out i mean that's that's yeah. what yeah and one of the things too that i've learned over the years is how important marketing is because i think you having a strong marketing funnel keeps you out of the pushy salesy like desperation or too much aggression of like trying to get someone who's not a good fit into your program. Like think about it. If you have, I mean, 
I don't know who would reach out to you that wouldn't be a good fit for your program, right? But like the more that we, the more people that we can engage with, it just makes it easier because we can find people who really want, for example, with our business coaching, they want to get to the next level with their business. And so there's no like pushiness. It's like either you want it or you don't. Like, let's first figure that out. Like, what are your goals? Okay, so you want to get to the next level. Like, how's your progress been? Bad. Okay. So now I'm like, okay, you're you're right in our wheelhouse. And then so if the objections come, it's just really legitimately figuring out, like, how are they self-sabotaging? But I was just going to say, the more people that we meet with, engage with, the more ads we run, the more setting we're doing, the more DMing, the more emails, webinars, whatever, then it's just like, like yesterday we enrolled a woman in my group. I signed her up and it's like, it was just so straightforward. Like she's always wanted to be a relationship coach. She doesn't know how to do it. She's wanting help. It was such a no brainer, but even with her, she was like, Oh, let me think about it. Cause there was obviously an investment. Um, but we talked through it, you know, let me think about it. Cool. What? Yeah. Before I send you off, what are you going to be thinking about? Like what questions do you have that I can answer? And, you know, one of my favorite questions is, uh, and I've, I've only asked this like once or twice, but I always get a good response from it. Maybe I should do this more is if you were to sign up, would you pay in full? I know you still have questions or you're thinking about it. That's fine. But if you would, if you were going to do this, how would you pay? Would you pay in full? Would you do the payment plan? And then you start, that's like, uh, when Jim Young says buying question, he goes, what's your firm minimum? That's a buying question, <laughs> right? So it's like you're asking those buying questions and you're getting them primed. And uh, that's always helpful because then you get to the root of kind of what they're thinking. Yeah. I mean, I, I ask questions like, when do you want to start? <laughs> Just assuming that they'll. Yeah. What works for you, morning or afternoon? Well, we do that when we're setting up meetings with people. Hey, I uh, saw you had been interested or reached out. When when do you want to talk? Tomorrow or Monday? One of my friends who was really good in sales, um, he was helping me early on. Um, and uh, he, he basically said, hey, Matt, you have people coming to you for help. You just need to, to be better at closing, meaning you just need to be better with just the function of the last the last few minutes of your call. So they know what the next step is and and they, there's no ambiguity and they're ready to say yes. And so he kind of wrote it out for me. And the best was he said, ask him this, ask him this, ask him this, ask him this. Uh, and then, and it was like, get, get the answer for this, get the answer for this. And then the last thing was hang up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> it was the funniest thing because I would get to the last one and I'd be like, all right, then I'll send you that invoice. See you later. <laughs> then I would hang up the phone. Hang up the phone. Oh, it's so funny. But he he literally put that hang up the phone was the last step. <laughs> don't uh, keep talking. Don't don't bring up something else. <laughs> well, the keep talking thing is really important. I was actually kind of fighting against that yesterday with this woman who was filling out all the payment information and signing up live with me. And it was I've had to work through that, the awkward silences. But, uh, you got quiet there for a second. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that's, um, this is all good sales stuff that has really helped us grow a lot. 
But yeah, Boiler Room, what a crazy movie. Yeah, someone asked me if it held up. I go, yeah, it kind of holds up. It's oh, little... I totally think it does. Yeah, yeah. So, someone asked me if it holds up. I go, yeah, it's pretty holds up. We watched Good Will Hunting uh, the other day, and uh, that worked out pretty good, too. It still sort of held up. And uh, it was kind of funny. Some of the guys from uh, Good Will Hunting show up in uh, in Boiler Room. And then we ben also... Ben Affleck, yeah. Yeah, Ben Affleck. I watched something else, too. Um, what was the other movie I watched? I was watching another movie where another guy from that that group showed up. I can't remember what it was. Uh, Casey Affleck was in, oh, in Ocean's Eleven. Mm. Uh, in Ocean's Eleven, a couple of the guys show up uh, from from that too. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I just also, I, I for me, Boiler Room, the there are a lot of healthy takeaways from an energy and a mindset and a sales perspective that I think you can learn from it if you take it obviously do something good with it. Like you're selling a service or a product that is actually healthy and valuable. And then the other thing that really stood out to me was the lengths that Seth went to destroy his own life and other people's lives to get the approval of his father. And so I just want to make another plug for anyone out there, you know, is what you're doing professionally, personally, the car you drive, the area of the world you live in, the relationship that you're in, is that 100% for you and what you want? Because on some level, we're all programmed to get other people to sign off on us. And with Seth, he, his father withheld so much love from him. There's a scene in the movie where they're all out to dinner. Seth, the parents, the brother... And Seth goes from being a college dropout at like Queens College to a stockbroker, which you would think would be this really fun thing to celebrate. So they're all out to dinner celebrating his new job. He passed the Series 7. And his father says to him, you know, Seth, why are you working at this firm that I've never heard of? Why wouldn't you work at a firm like Goldman Sachs? That was such a jerk. And so it's like, you know, everyone I think has a parent or a grandparent or a cousin or someone like that. And I just want to make a plug. Like, I don't give a rip what those people think anymore. Go do what you want to do. Love it. And then one more scene that I just love from the movie. It's so funny is when they're having the family dinner and Seth's dad finds out about the casino and then he brings the casino chips to the dinner table and he's throwing them at Seth and, embarrassing him and the mom goes marty are those drugs well and then the best of the reason he could tell that the casino chips were his because he had his name or his logo on him but he had to create those because some kid in the neighborhood was trying to get you know using chips that he got at walmart or something so yeah moishi yeah so yeah oh great movie hey one one uh one thing that I uh, thought about bringing up in the movie that that comes up a number of times is treating people with respect and which is funny because there's a lot of disrespect in this movie but there are some times where guys cross a line and uh, and are treated very harshly because they look down on someone and um, there's a couple of times that happen like that and I, I just thought that was interesting too this idea that even in this world of kind of unethicalness that there's still these sort of rules like Hey, treat people with respect. Like this isn't, you know, we're, we're trying to be professionals here. There's a sense of that idea. And, um, 
I just thought that was kind of funny a couple times. And, and actually, a couple times when people do look down on people, then it ends up hurting them mm -hmm. uh, on some level. It, it actually comes back to bite them. So, Yeah. Are um, you talking about the scene where they kick the kid out of the meeting? Well, there's one, yeah, they kick the kid out of the meeting, but there's another thing where, uh, you know, uh, Seth's uh, mentor, whoever Seth is reporting under, at some point starts treating Seth with disrespect and it does not, you know, it kind of, right. kind of burning him a little bit. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, there's other characters who treat Seth, you know, like a colleague pretty early, you know, even though he's junior. And uh, mm -hmm. so, I don't know, it just kind of was interesting. And there was one point where Seth was disrespectful and got got kind of called for being disrespectful and not being serious. So, yeah. you know. I just lo also love the, uh, this is going to be the last thing I say, but the scene where they the do that. I, yeah. The, the wall street um, movie and they're at that guy's house and Seth walks in, Seth drives to the guy's house and it's like a huge mansion and uh, he goes inside and the whole house is empty. It's like, there's like Ferraris in front. There's no furniture. There's no dining room table. And then they sit on the floor and the only thing in the living room is a huge flat screen TV. And uh, Seth turns kinda like to- Kind of like your condo. Yeah, kind of like my condo, very funny. Just kidding. This guy, just jealous of my 82 inch TV. I'm, well, I'm, I'm glad you have a chair now. <laughs> Talking about. Uh, but but uh, Seth turns to the guy and he's like, uh, he's like, did Jim just move in here? And he's like, no, what are you talking about? He's been here all year. Yeah, it's like, he's been here eight months. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny. But, all right, well, if that wasn't enough for you guys, I don't know what else to do to get you to go watch Boiler Room, but it's a, to me, it's a cult classic and one of my favorite movies of all time. Me too. All right, Matt, anything else? Roll, uh, roll the credits here. Room, yeah, not about Boiler Room. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks. thanks for this just reminds me so much of like that era, like late '90s, early yeah. 2000s. You have that the clip of the. The guy on the Ravens? <laughs> no, I don't have it on here. Oh, that's my favorite. Uh, this is, yeah. Right on. Well, I'll hit that outro. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. If it's your first time here, please make sure to subscribe on the Apple Podcast app or in Spotify. Also, please leave us a rating or written review. This helps others learn about the show and spread the word to new and more people. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.